Good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. We're looking at verses 1 through 10 today. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this passage on page 1035. I'm going to begin this uh, time with a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text carefully together. So let's pray now. Our Lord, we do thank you so much for this beautiful morning that you've given to us. Lord, thank you for all the beautiful people that are here today. Thank you for so working in their lives that you should prompt them to come and gather with a church family and to worship you, to hear from your word and to apply it to their lives. Lord, would you bless them, bless their, their households. Lord, would you help us now as we consider this portion of your word, give us great understanding, help us to see the, the significance of these words to our lives as Christians, and Lord, might you be honored in the time spent around your word today, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're new to Grace Baptist Church, you should know that we are working through a series on the book of Revelation right now. We've been in the series for a few months, we've got a few months to go. And if you're not familiar with Revelation, this is a book primarily taken up with prophecies about the future and particularly related to the second coming of Christ and the inauguration of his earthly kingdom. The section that we're in now is detailing a period in the future known as the Great Tribulation. This is the final three and a half years before the kingdom of Christ is established. By this point, the church has been removed, the world's fallen into chaos, God is meeting out His just judgments on the world of unbelief. Many people are being saved in this time period, but the majority are hardening themselves against God. But it's out of this milieu that a new leader will emerge on the world stage, one who will promise that he can bring order out of this chaos, one who will promise that he can even protect the world from these cascading judgments. And the world will rally around him as a savior. And he goes by many different names in scripture. The name he is best known for is Antichrist. And today's text recounts the, the character and the career of the Antichrist. We're going to look at it together. And then we'll also seek to make application of this passage to our lives. The first truth about Antichrist that we see here is very simple. It's that Antichrist is coming. Antichrist is coming. And when he comes, he will be the embodiment of all evil. Let's look at verses 1 through 2 together. The Apostle John writes this, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now here the Apostle John is describing the rise of the Antichrist. But you notice John assigns a, a title to him. He calls him the beast. It could also be translated as monster. He will be a diabolical figure, a, a man who is more like an unreasoning animal than a human being. 
And then this verse, uh, first verse also says that he's going to rise out of the sea. Now, this could simply mean that he's going to emerge from the mass of humanity. This could be the sea of humanity, but I believe it has a, a more uh, dark meaning. In fact, if you'll direct your gaze back to Revelation chapter 11, verse 7, it says this beast is going to arise from the abyss or the bottomless pit. And then if you look ahead to Revelation 17, verse 8, it says the same thing again. He will arise from the bottomless pit. Of course, that is a reference to hell. And so I think what's in view here in Revelation 13 is that John is telling us this This Antichrist, he will be a man of diabolical character. He will also be a man whose rise to power is owing to the machinations of the devil. He'll be a devilish figure. I think this would harmonize well with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which says, quote, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. So it's not an entirely natural affair that leads to his rise to prominence. Then as we continue on with these verses, we find that this Antichrist figure will wield great power, power greater than any of his predecessors had ever wielded. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says the beast will have ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems or crowns on its horns, blasphemous names on its heads. Revelation 13 doesn't give us any further explanation of this, but chapter 17 does. Chapter 17 tells us that the seven heads of the beast refer to six major world empires which preceded his, namely the Egyptian, the Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman empires. And then his kingdom is the seventh head. I think the idea here is that Antichrist's kingdom will be the culmination or the climax of all of the godless kingdoms that preceded his. I think this is confirmed by verse 2, which says, The beast was like a leopard, he had feet like a bear's, he had a mouth like a lion's mouth. Now this may recall to your mind Daniel chapter 7, where all of these ancient godless kingdoms are depicted as various beasts. Here we find the Antichrist in his kingdom depicted as all of these beasts combined. He has the swiftness of a leper, the power of a bear, the ferocity of a lion, all wrapped into one. So again, it, it speaks of Antichrist and his kingdom as being the great culmination or the climax of all of the godless empires that preceded his. He is the ultimate in godless leadership. And then this beast also has ten horns. We learn later in the book that these ten horns refer to ten world leaders who will operate under the administrative control of Antichrist. These leaders are wearing crowns because they have dictatorial powers in the world. They have blasphemous names on their heads because, again, this is a godless empire. Then we look at the second part of verse 2. We find that in addition to all of the natural powers that Antichrist will acquire, he will also be supernaturally empowered. The verse uh, reads at the end, And to it the dragon, that's the devil, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So Antichrist will rise to power due to demonic machinations, 
And he will also wield power that is demonic in nature. And again, this accords well with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which says Antichrist will have, quote, false signs and wonders. See, he will appear to be a, a superhuman. He will be able to do things that normal people cannot do. Friends, the result of all of this will be an empire that appears all but invincible to the world's inhabitants. They will look at this man. They will look at the power that he wields. They will look at the, the um, alliance that he has built. And they will say, truly, there has never been a kingdom like this one. And it will be the last great world empire before the kingdom of Christ comes. This will be the last of the world's godless empires. The Antichrist will present himself to the world as a Christ-like figure. You see that in verse 3. It says, And one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now this thought is repeated in verse 12 of the chapter. It says, the beast had a mortal wound which was healed, and repeated again in verse 14. It says, the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now, you are familiar with the ministry of Christ. You know that he, he came, that he lived, that he was crucified and died, and that he rose again. And it is for these reasons that Jesus is worshipped the world over. He is the Son of God who lived and then who rose. Well, Antichrist will have a similar story to tell. He will be the one who rose to power, who is mortally wounded, and yet who lived. Now, I can't tell you what this mortal wound speaks of. Could this be an assassination attempt? Or could it be something politically contrived? He, he manufactured a mortal injury so that he could appear to have a resurrection. We simply cannot know. All we do know is that he will present himself as a dark parody of Christ, the one who lived and died and came back again. And for this reason, the entire world will marvel at him. And Antichrist will accept the world's adulation. Look at verse 4. It says, And they, that is, the world's inhabitants, they worshipped the dragon, worshipping the devil, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, the Antichrist, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Friends, isn't this horrific? Here we are in the great tribulation. God is meeting out his just judgments on the world. And a great reason for this is to secure the world's repentance, to shake them out of their complacency, to realize the kingdom of Christ is near. It's time to repent, to trust in him. But rather than turning from their sins and trusting in Christ, so many of the world's inhabitants will turn to the devil instead. They will harden themselves against the things of God. They will look to the devil for salvation, and they will turn to the Antichrist, the man empowered by the devil, looking to him as their savior, looking to him for protection from God's judgments. And they'll marvel at the beast. They will ask questions like this, who is like the beast? Who can fight against him? See, he will appear unconquerable to them. 
When we come to verses 5 through 8, here we learn something of Antichrist's career. Verse 5 says, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. So he will rise to power, and then he will speak like a man with great power. He'll speak haughty words, that is to say, words of arrogance. He will proclaim his own greatness. And he'll speak blasphemous words. These are words of, of public contempt for the things of God. Skipping down to verse 6, it says, And he opened its, his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So this figure, he is going to boast great things about himself. I am the greatest. I am the strongest. And he's going to throw contempt upon all things holy. He will declare his hatred of God, of the name of God, which represents God's character, of the people of God. He will, he will speak with contempt toward angels and toward the saints of God, toward heaven itself. He is setting himself up as the enemy of God and as the savior of unregenerate mankind. And then verse 7, he will also turn his hostility to the people of God on the earth. It says, verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. You see, there will be born-again believers on the earth during the Great Tribulation. None at the start, but as the judgments are coming down, people will respond in repentance and faith. God's Spirit will be pouring out upon the world during this future time in history. Uh, there will be gospel proclamations taking place in the tribulation. Many will believe in God. And Antichrist will direct his ire at them. He will make war on them. That is to say, he will launch an, a, a coordinated attack against God's people, all who have turned from their sins and received Christ during this great tribulation. Antichrist's efforts will appear to meet with great success. It says he will make war on the saints and conquer them. Many lives will be lost. Many thrown into prison. Many others forced to live underground. And friends, the unregenerate world will love the Antichrist for it. They will love him for it. Look at the second part of verse 7 down to verse 8. It says... And authority was given it, that is, Antichrist, over every tribe and people and language and nation. You see, his authority is extending all over the globe. And everyone, excuse me, uh, verse 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. All who dwell on earth will worship it. Now, friends, we might wonder at this. How could such an evil man receive worship? The answer is that his subjects will not see him as evil. They will see him as a savior. They will see him as a god. Just like the ancient Egyptians saw their pharaoh as a god. And the ancient Assyrians and Babylonians saw their emperors as god, just as the ancient Romans saw their Caesars as gods, just as many 20th century Germans saw Adolf Hitler as a god, so too, in this coming day, will many under Antichrist's sway see him as a god, a savior. 
Remember, my friends, the, the Great Tribulation will be a time of unprecedented chaos on the earth. The church of God will have been removed. God's wrath will be dispensed in ever-increasing severity. Those who re refuse to repent and trust in God will be looking for a Savior. They'll be looking for a strong man to help them. And they will find their strong man in Antichrist. They will rally behind him. They'll support his persecution against God's people on the earth. They'll support his blasphemous words against God in heaven. And they're going to trust Antichrist to get them through this time of unprecedented chaos. But you'll notice here, second part of verse 8, not everyone will worship the Antichrist. Not everyone. It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him Everyone except those whose names, or excuse me, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So everyone will worship the beast except, except for those whose names are written in the book of life. That's a description of born-again believers. Isn't that a beautiful way to describe a believer? A person whose name has been written down in a book. Written down by God. Written down before the very foundation of the world. You see, friends, God has a personal knowledge of every single one of his children. He has known your name if you are one of his known your name since before the world began, and he set his love on you, and he chose you to be one of his children, and in time he brought you to salvation, and he will keep you eternally secure. There will be people living at this time in, in world history that God has chosen, that God has saved, and that God will help to persevere through it all. And the book is called the book of the Lamb who was slain. That is to say, the book of names of those who were purchased by the death and resurrection of Christ. God chose them. Christ died for them. The Spirit saved them. Now they are His blood-bought saints of God. During the tribulation period, everyone in the whole world will get in line behind Antichrist, but not God's people. Not the ones whose names are written in this book. Not those chosen from before the foundations of the world. They, they will resist him. They will stand against him. And they will persevere. And ultimately, friends, they will prevail. It won't be easy for them. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword, he must be slain. In other words, there will be great persecution in that day. Some will go off to captivity. Others will lose their lives. They will become martyrs. And to such enduring faith, they will be called. Look how verse 10 ends. It says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. It will be very difficult for believers in that day. But they will know their mandate. No matter what they are called to face, they must persevere. And indeed they shall because God owns them. They are His. 
They have no fear of death. They have no fear of loss of life or liberty. They will persevere in the faith. And you know, friends, even as this passage gives them a mandate to persevere, their perseverance will be guaranteed because our text also gives them the encouragement they will need to persevere. Let's go back through the text together. Friends, here's the message the passage offers. Here's the big takeaway for all of us today, so I don't want you to miss this. What this passage teaches us today, friends, is that God's people can persevere in all circumstances, even the very worst of circumstances. Because while evil is mighty, God is almighty. I'll say that again. God's people can persevere in any age, through any calamity, because while evil is mighty, God is almighty. And God shows us his might here in Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. This passage shows us that God is always in control and therefore always worthy of our trust. We have every reason to persevere in our faith because of this. Let's look back at verse 5 again. This verse spoke of the Antichrist, and it said, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Do you notice the passive voice of the verb? The beast was given a mouth. Question, given a mouth by whom? The answer, given a mouth by God. God gave the Antichrist his mouth. God is the one who permitted the Antichrist to speak his haughty and blasphemous words. Look further down verse 5. And it was allowed to exercise authority. Allowed by whom? Again, allowed by God. God gave Antichrist his mouth, or should I say will give Antichrist his mouth. God will give to Antichrist his power. He will permit it in his providence. But then you also notice verse 5, God will set the limit for the Antichrist's use of authority. It says he was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That is three and a half years. What happens at the end of those three and a half years? Christ comes and inaugurates his kingdom on the earth. So God gives Antichrist his mouth, God gives Antichrist his authority, God gives Antichrist a period of time in which he can run free. Exactly 42 months, and then it is over. Kingdom of Christ comes, and then Antichrist is through. Antichrist is mighty, but God is almighty. Look also verse 7. It says, also it was allowed to make war on the saints. And to conquer them. Allowed by whom? Allowed by God. God permits the persecution of his saints on earth. And then verse 5, as we learn about the believers on earth at that time, how did the verse describe these believers? It said, those whose names had been written before the foundation of the world. In the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So who are these believers in this future time? Believers that God chose, that God secured, that God redeemed, that God will see through this time of persecution. Who wrote down their names before the foundation of the world? God wrote down their names. You see, 
from beginning to end in this text, God is the one in charge. God is the one either ordaining or permitting everything that occurs. See, friends, even in the most troubling and chaotic period in world history, this coming time known as the Great Tribulation, even in this time, God will be in control. See, friends, God is always in control. God is always sovereign. And don't miss this, friends, because this is how today's passage applies to us in the here and now. This speaks to a future time, but it is for us today, too. The point of the passage is to show us that God is sovereign over every era of world history. Even this coming era that will be the worst period that the world has ever known, even then God is in control, which means that in every era before that, the time we're living in now even, God is in control. Times when the church is triumphing in the world, God is in control. Times when the church sees its influence waning, God is in control then too. God is sovereign over each moment of our individual lives as well. That includes the good times and the bad. The times in life when everything is going your way, God is in control. In times when your heart is breaking, you're losing a loved one. Times when you've lost your job, when you've gotten that cancer diagnosis. In times when everything seems to be against you, God is still in control. He's still sovereign over your life. And furthermore, friends, his superintendence over this world is never arbitrary. It's never arbitrary because God always rules according to his wise and holy and good nature. And at all times, God is driving human history forward to his intended climax, which is the kingdom of Christ on the earth. So no matter what time in history you're living in, no matter what your cultural moment looks like, no matter what personal struggles you might be up against, you have no need to fear, you have no need to doubt, you have every reason to hold fast your faith, to persevere all the way through, right to the end, no matter what that end might be. And friend, when you're struggling to understand why God permits what he does, even then you can persevere. You know, last week we remembered Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. You know, our Lord Jesus was a sinless being. Never once was he guilty of any injustice, any crime against God. And yet, what did God permit for him? Mistreatment, persecution, crucifixion, and death. But do you thank God that he allowed his sinless son to experience such things? I trust that you do because it is by means of Christ's crucifixion, his death, and then his resurrection that our salvation was secured. There'd be no heaven for us if Christ had not suffered and died and then been raised. So you see, when God permits evil, he does it for a good reason. He has good that he intends to bring out of the bad. God is not the author of sin, neither is he guilty of tempting men to sin. But when he does permit sinful things to take place, when he allows hard and difficult things to take place, it is for the purpose of moving your life and all of history forward to its 
appointed good end. And you can be sure that just as God did not allow his son's suffering and death to be in vain, so too he will not allow your suffering to be in vain. If he should call you to lose your life because of your Christian testimony, that will not be in vain. He will redeem those moments. He will use them for his good. He will use them to hasten the coming of his kingdom. And so you can trust in him at all times. You can trust in his sovereignty. You can trust in his good providence in your life. Friends, this is our mandate at all times and in all places. It is to continue clinging to Christ in faith no matter what circumstances we are living under. It's to continue boldly witnessing of Christ no matter what opposition we face. And it's to remain faithful to Christ unto death. That is the mandate for God's people in every age. Let's pray now as we close. Lord, we thank you for the day that you've given to us and we pray that you would help us to see your good and sovereign hand in every moment of our lives. Even in those times of great difficulty. Lord, we see in today's text that even in this future time, which will be the, the worst era that the world has ever known, certainly the worst time that your people have ever known, even then you will be the one in charge. And you will be driving history toward that great climax, your son's return to inaugurate his kingdom, to take his throne, and then finally to wipe away every tear, to bring an end to death and suffering once and for all. Lord, we know that everything that happens now, everything that you ordain and permit, that it's all driving us ahead to that great climax. So help us to trust in you. Help us, Lord, to take our mandate seriously, to be faithful through it all, to be bold and courageous through it all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.